Welcome to another episode of Focused on Christ, where we are passionate about exalting Christ and equipping the church. I'm Mike Crump, here with Pastor Nathan Smith, and after several weeks of dreams, visions, creatures, and temples, we are now stepping into the historical narrative of the book of Esther. Uh, Nathan, have you enjoyed all the mystical creatures and uh, <laughs> visions that we've studied? I I think it has so much to give us glimpses of the glories that are ahead in heaven. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the Old Testament can feel very fantastical at times, and it's a time period that feels so far removed. It can we can sometimes get lost in the details. Yeah. Like, what am I reading? But I think that those are all reminders that there are so many glories that are yet before us that we can look forward to. Amen. That being said, it's been a great journey in the Old Testament, but it's such an exciting thing to begin the the turn to the corner, yeah. where we're actually going to be able to see the culmination of the new, the Old Testament in the person of Christ. Amen. I'm looking forward to that. We will have that in a couple episodes, so stay tuned. Uh, now, before we begin our discussion in Esther, I do want to ask a question from one of our listeners. She asks, why are the ten tribes of Israel referred to sometimes as Ephraim? A good question. Uh, sometimes we don't understand why names are used. I'm going to try and answer from a couple different perspectives, mm-hmm. just very briefly. But Israel's 12 tribes were named for Jacob's children. We see that in the Old, the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And then Ephraim was actually one of Joseph's children. Now, Ephraim, the name mm-hmm. literally means God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And there's a little bit of an, uh, a theological emphasis here that God has brought fruitfulness despite the difficulties, and the sufferings. Mm. Throughout the Old Testament, then, the name Ephraim is used specifically to refer to the ten northern tribes of Israel. The The southern tribe of Judah is, is the tribe of promise. Mm-hmm. It's the tribe of promise. But the ten northern tribes, uh, now we have 12 tribes, but conspicuously we have one that is absent. Yeah. But the ten northern tribes are the ones who, despite all of their failings, their sufferings, God is still going to bring some sort of fruitfulness. And it points to really to the hope of God's plan, despite the northern kingdom's constant rebellion. It is a name of hope, even when it's used as a rebuke. Mm -hmm. You, Ephraim, don't you know I have plans for you? Mm. That's what the name is referring to. Okay. No, that's very helpful. Very helpful. If you have questions like that, we would definitely love to hear from you. You can just email questions at focusedonchrist.com. But today, uh, we are looking at the book of Esther, which really reads very different than uh, the prophetic books we've been in here recently. Um, Nathan, can you help provide the context of this book? Because it's set in a pretty important and interesting time of history. When we look at the book of Esther, it really is set in a very key historical moment. Uh, The book of Esther itself actually happens during the Persian Empire. And it's one of those books that actually we can, with relative accuracy, pinpoint when these events took place, who the kings were, Mm. and partially because the Persians themselves were such uh, prolific writers. Uh, Early on in in, in human history, Mm -hmm. they they didn't write so much. We didn't have developed alphabet and languages. You have clay tablets. But by the time of the Persian Empire, the 4th and 5th century BC, uh, really records have become quite prolific. Mm. We, we come to Esther, which we're, we're looking at roughly 480 B.C., 500 okay. B.C., so 500 years before the time of Christ. Um, we're coming to this book, and it's under the reign of Xerxes. He's, he's the, the king yeah. that is mentioned here. Now, now the, Esther says Ahasuerus, yeah. but we understand that name, and I won't go into all the details, to be Xerxes. Okay. Who is Xerxes? 
Xerxes is the one who, in, you know, we know in popular culture and history, led the invasion of Greece, yeah. fought the Greeks, had horrible defeats yeah. there, <laughs> and then comes back to Persia a little bit in, in shame and yeah. dishonor. He was defeated by the Greeks even though uh, they were militarily inferior in terms of numbers. Uh, the Lord did not allow Xerxes mm-hmm. to go any further. Um, so th- that's where the book of Esther. So the, really chapter one, the beginning of chapter one of Esther is Xerxes before he goes to Greece. And then chapter two is after he returns from Greece. Gotcha. So this is a very historical, seismically significant period. So that's the backdrop of kind of what's happening. And what we see happening is really fascinating because in the book of Esther, God is not mentioned at all. No. But how how can God's character be on display or be understood if he's not even mentioned in the pages of it? If there's a theme for Esther, it would be God working behind the scenes even though we do not see him. Okay. And even even the absence of God's name is is in itself a lesson mm. showing that God through what seems to be these random events and and, and, he, and circumstances that we couldn't plan, God moving to bring about his desired providential end. Amen. So the book of Esther, it's this historically significant period. Yep. But what is the story? You know, we need to deconstruct some of the, 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 the popular cultural extrapolations of the love story and everything. Yep. What is going on? We have this king who is incredibly powerful and wealthy. He's the, the, the monarch of the greatest empire of this period of history. In Esther chapter 1, it says that Xerxes, Ahasuerus, reigned from India to Ethiopia. This is a massive empire. It's a large area. Oh, it's yeah. huge. And if you look at the descriptions of his kingdom, it says in verse 6 that as he's having this feast, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings mm. fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rods and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. That's a lot of peas. <laughs> and a lot of descriptions of extreme wealth. Yeah, uh, Drinks are served in golden vessels, and there is just a great wealth and power mm. in the Persian Empire. Brief overview. This is this is a narrative. It's different yep. than what we've talked about so far. So I want to give just a brief overview of the narrative. So you have this powerful king, Xerxes Ahasuerus. He has a queen, Vashti, who dishonors him. And that is horrible in a, in, a, in a culture of honor and shame. Yeah. And so he deposes her. Now remember, he's an autocrat. He's an absolute monarch. He can do what he wants. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying that's it's what, just he, what it is. It's what it is. It's what he did. Then you have Esther, this Jewish girl who is on the scene at the right time in the right place, is raised from really obscurity and becomes the queen of Persia. Mm. And in this moment, at the same time, there's this man, Haman, who seeks the destruction of the Jews because of a personal offense mm-hmm. that he incurred at Mordecai's hand. And then God is going to preserve and protect the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, from destruction by bringing Esther into the right place at the right time through the right circumstances and events, accomplish his sovereign purpose, bring justice, and perpetuate his redemptive plan that will ultimately culminate in Jesus Christ. That's quite an overview, isn't it? That is quite the overview. <laughs> and that there are it's a, lot, it's a lot of stuff there. And as you were saying, I mean, inside of this story, this narrative that sweeps over the multiple chapters, you just see incident after incident of God setting up kind of the next thing, the next thing happening. Um, e- even just the, the the fight between the king and the queen, you have 
this fear of the king that, oh, well, now other women are going to kind of stand up and refuse to obey, and so I've got to put a hard fist down about this. And that leads to a beauty pageant. (laughs) (laughs) That is another way to put it. Yes, you're, you're, you're right. You're right. And so this beauty pageant, we have Esther. Now, Esther, her background, you mentioned, you know, that she came from a little bit of nothing, but she actually came from the Babylonian captivity is where she came out of. And so she finds herself here in a foreign place among people that could be hostile to her. And yet God had a different plan altogether. It's amazing that when we might say how— the pettiness of their of, of the king mm-hmm. and Queen Vashti, uh, their pettiness in, in that they'd have this argument that would have national implications. Yeah, and yet God used, uh, if I might, th- th- their pettiness. Yeah. to accomplish His purpose to bring Esther onto the scene. Mm. Now, who is Esther? Yeah, Esther is a Jew. Uh, she uh, is an orphan. Uh, she's raised by her adoptive uncle Mordecai, uh, and Mordecai is a law-abiding Jew who we even see him that he is taking in this orphan. He is caring for her as his own daughter. Mm. And God even puts Mordecai, not only Esther, but Mordecai at the right place at the right time, as you mentioned, at one instance to overhear a plot to assassinate the king. What are the chances of that happening? What are the chances of him being in the right place at the right time to hear that go on? So not only is Esther chosen to be queen, but Mordecai is at the right place at the right time to hear something that then prevents the assassination of the king, which further elevates both Mordecai and Esther and puts them into a place where they can be instrumental in helping prevent the, eradica- the eradication of the Jews. Yeah. And in the midst of all this, as God is elevating Esther and elevating Mordecai, you see Haman, who's trying to elevate himself in the midst mm-hmm. of all of this, and, and I find what is one of the funniest, most kind of can you, ironic moments of this book is you have Haman who goes into the king, and the king's like, Haman, I really want to honor one of my favorite people, <laughs> a man who has done so much for me. I just I, I really, so much humor I really want to do something great for this guy. And Haman's like, this has got to be me, right? I, I know. It's, it's this height of egocentric yeah. narcissism. And so he's like, you know what? You should treat him basically like the king. You put him on a stallion. You take him down the courtyard, and you put the robes on him and a crown on his head and have people <laughs> bow to him. It's going to be great. And Mordecai, I mean, Haman's sitting here going, I just can't wait for this. This is going to all be all about me, and he thinks he's the one. Yep. He is so focused on himself. Yep. And then in God's humor, he ends up having to lead his mortal en- enemy, Mordecai, in that procession and uh, leading to just a, even a greater hardness of heart and desire to see the people of God, the Jews, destroyed. Um, and so this hardness of heart and this desire to be elevated is happening in Haman while at the same time on the opposite spectrum. God, who is sovereignly orchestrating these things, is elevating his people, Esther and Mordecai, to a place of rule and reign, or, or at least in influence among the king. And I just think it's beautiful how it the is. Lord is able to do these things, and it's not by the effort of Mordecai, it's not by the effort of Esther, it is by God's ordained path that he has kind of led them on. Now, they're being obedient, yes, but we see God just working through that. And it's an encouragement to me <laughs> that, you know what, 
God has got this, you know, yeah. sp- especially as we're yeah. heading towards the political season, you know, that, you know what, I can trust that the Lord is going to raise and he's going to lower according to his great purposes. Well, Haman, Haman is a is a really calculating evil man. And, and we shouldn't make no mistake that behind Haman really are the efforts of the demonic to yeah. destroy the people of God and thwart the plan of God yeah. and shame the people of God. Mm. But God in his sovereignty prevents that from happening and actually honors his own people through Mordecai and Esther and shames, brings open shame, the powers of darkness, Mm. which is something that Jesus does on the cross later on in the New Testament. He exposes and brings to shame those works of darkness. And so we 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 see God's sovereignty accomplishing amazing things. And I think the practical for us, Mike, is that in our day and age when we see uh, the world, and we wonder, what is God doing? Mm. I mean, imagine the Jews of that day. All they heard was after Haman orchestrated his political intrigue, a proclamation goes out, eradicate the Jews on the state. Mm. The normal Jew, all they knew was, we're going to be destroyed. Yeah. So they cry out, God help us. That's all they know. They don't know about Esther. They don't know about Mordecai. They don't have the benefit of the book of Esther to be able to look retrospectively yeah. and say, oh, that's oh, what God okay. was doing. Yeah, God's got this. All they know is that all they can do is trust God mm. and say, God, what are you doing? And then a couple of days later, a second pro, you know, proclamation comes out and says, oh, by the way, Jews, you can defend yourself. Mm. And they're saved and they're able to repulse uh, the, the, uh, the, the people who are seeking their eradication. Yeah. They still don't know all of the points in between. God, we don't know what you did. But praise God that you are working. Mm. It's a reminder that even though we don't see or understand God's plan, mm-hmm. we know He is working behind the scenes. Amen. So Esther is a great moment, a moment in real history, yeah. documented history, complex political intrigue, and yet God is almost humorously mm. working out His sovereignty for His glory, our good, and fulfilling His redemptive plan. Amen. And I think on the Part of that, and I think this is very helpful for us as we consider God's sovereignty, is that we are not just kind of dead fish flowing through it. God has called us to step into that. And Mordecai in Esther 4 is talking to Esther. And she is fearful about coming to the king with her concern about what Haman has brought to bear. And considering Vashti deposing her, oh. you can understand why she's so nervous. Oh, yeah. Am I going to be the next Vashti? Yeah, yeah. Is the king going to accept me if I go before him? Is this, is this just going to end up where I'm kicked out and now there's no hope? Um, but Mordecai, speaking to her, says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom. And here's that quote, right? For such a time as this. That God, yes, is orchestrating. God is sovereign. But God also has provided an opportunity for Esther, for Mordecai to walk in obedience and boldness for the sake of God's people. And they can choose in that moment to do so. We have the intersection of responsibility and God's sovereignty. Mm-hmm. God's sovereignty is not thwarted by our disobedience, but our obedience has the opportunity to work in concert with yeah. his sovereignty. Yeah. And that's what Mordecai is calling Esther to. Esther, you have an opportunity mm. to demonstrate your worship and fidelity to God. But if you don't, God's not thwarted. Yeah. He will deliver his people. An incredible statement of faith. Yeah. Mordecai knows that God is going to protect and further his people. Mm. And he's calling Esther 
to join in that faith. And what's amazing is she does. Amen. Amen. She does. The people are saved. And there's so much celebration. I mean, that God has helped his people. And again, we see this reversal where Haman, who built gallows to hang the people of... Specifically Mordecai. He wants to hang Mordecai. Yeah, he wants to hang Mordecai. I mean, first up there... He ends up being hung on these same gallows. And it's just, again, God's justice is good and right, and he will care for his people. Yes. The justice that Satan was trying to orchestrate against God Mm. ultimately falls on his own head in justice and judgment. And that is ultimately accomplished on the work of the cross where Jesus lays bare the powers of darkness, defeats them at their own game. In other words, death is the purview of Satan and sin. But God on the cross says, I'm going to use death and sin on the cross, pay it, and you're defeated. It's the ultimate turnaround. Esther's the ultimate turnaround. The cross is the ultimate turnaround, fulfilling everything the Old Testament talks about. Amen. What the enemy sought to use for evil, God will use for good and for his yes. divine purposes and ultimately for our salvation, as you mentioned, in the cross. Amen. And the question is, you asked, why is God not in the book of Esther? Yeah. Uh, well, his name isn't mentioned, but the fingerprints are all over it. Amen. And stands in complete concert and consistency with the rest of Scripture. Amen. I would encourage you, if you have not read through Esther, even recently, uh, that you do so because it really is a beautiful book. And as you read through it, just consider all the ways that God has shown himself faithful to his people. Mm-hmm. And uh, that same God who orchestrated that faithfulness towards his people then continues to do so today in Christ. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us for today's episode. Next week, Pastor Nathan and I will examine the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. What can we learn from this prophetic book, and how does it point to the coming Messiah? Well, you'll just have to join us next week to find out. Till then, if you have questions or want more information about Focused on Christ, you can visit us online at FocusedOnChrist.com.